podcast number two in a series I'm doing interviewing Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine meeting presenters. Uh, Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine is also known as AIM, uh, and that's how I'll refer to AIM going forward here. This interview is with Dr. Mike Krug, who presented at the AIM meeting in April 2019 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a workshop called Teaching Effectively in a Large Group Setting. This is a topic that I thought would be relevant for any medical educator or administrator that speaks uh, with or in front of large groups, and I thought our listeners might learn some new approaches to teaching as well uh, as enjoy this interview just in general. If you're an AIM member who would like a copy of the workshop slides or summary tip sheet, I will seek um, Mike and his co-presenters' permission to email them to you. You can find my email in the AIM member directory at www.im.org um, or just email me uh, and I'll send them to you if you already have my email. Someday when I am old and gray, which I already sort of am, I hope to have a home for show notes where I can upload documents mentioned in these podcasts. But in the meantime, uh, just feel free to email me. So, Mike, I was hoping you could uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to our podcast audience. Sure, yeah. My name is Mike Krug. I am an academic general internist. I um, practiced at the Boise VA in Boise, Idaho. I learned how to pronounce Boise correctly about two years ago, but I've been here about three and a half. Um, my primary clinical focus is I'm a true generalist, and I do inpatient and outpatient care. I also dabble in periop. Um, and then my academic title is I'm an associate program director at the U University of Washington Boise Internal Medicine Residency Program. Um, at the UW, there are two internal medicine residencies, one in Seattle, that's the big one, and then we have a smaller one based out here in Boise. Oh, I see. And do the uh, Seattle UW residents rotate out in Boise? Um, no, but the Boise folks rotate out in Seattle. Oh, nice. That must be nice for them to be able to travel west. Yep. Um, Mike, uh, what are you most passionate about in your life, um, whether it's uh, something in medicine or outside of medicine or both? Um, you know, I think the standard stuff, I love my family, I like the outdoors, I like books and movies, but I think um, what I'm a little bit more obsessive about uh, is uh, working out and paying attention to sports, and it's pretty much all sports, uh, really, and so it's love to go to games live if I can, ideally, uh, but also on TV um, or on the radio. Excellent. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, because I know a lot of the best workshops, and this was one of the top-rated workshops at the Philadelphia AIM meetings in the spring, uh, is it's usually a team effort. Um, and I know you had a couple of co-presenters there with you, and I was wondering if you could just tell me who they were and where they're based. Yeah, abs this was absolutely a team effort. Um, I joke with my friends, and so I'll share this with you and hope we won't get in trouble. Uh, one of my co-presenters, his name is Doug Powell. Uh, he is a real force for good in the medical education world in the Pacific Northwest. He's a professor of medicine at the UW in Seattle. He's the clerkship director uh, for the third years, and he has an endowed chair in patient-centered uh, education there. And I like to joke that I'm sort of like the pilot fish to his shark, and he just gobbles up all these amazing things, and then whatever little bits float around, I sort of sneak in and grab them. Um, and he's really been a, an amazing mentor to me. 
uh, throughout my career and certainly in this workshop. And then another stellar physician that I worked with for this workshop, his name is Lenny Mankin. He's a primary doc care doc in Portland at Legacy Good Samaritan Health Center, and he's an associate program director there at their residency program. Oh, excellent. It's, it's good to know who's behind um, all these great creations at these meetings. I was wondering if, uh, Mike, you could just summarize initially um, how you, I mean, this is, I, I think, a, uh, a, a great topic, but it's a tough topic, I think, to cover and get people to have meaningful take-homes. Um, and I was wondering how you presented this material at the workshop and just sort of maybe a, a rough sketch of how that went initially, and then we could dive a little deeper on into um, various segments of it. Yeah, sure, Paul. Um, you know, Paul, I was fortunate enough to listen to your the first pod podcast in this series from the Emory Group, the Climate Changers. I really appreciated that. And they mentioned that they tried to model some of their techniques actually with the group. You know, they're introducing themselves when the people came in and trying to set a good climate. And so we in our workshop tried to do the same thing, and we really tried to model the content as much as we were teaching it or explaining it. You know, so each of the sort of core concepts uh, that we tried to show, we also tried to model um, and, and in overlapping ways. So we, you know, there's one segment, segment on PowerPoint tips. And so, of course, we're using the PowerPoint tips all along. <laughs> um, and there's a segment on sort of your nerves, and so we're all the while sort of picking out things that helped us dampen our nerves for, for particular segments and things like that. Uh, but, you know, in terms of our um, outline and core concepts, we focused on the introduction, how you choose the content for your talk, how to get and keep engagement, how to tackle PowerPoint and optimize it, and then how to deal with nerves. So those were the, what is that, five uh, core uh, content areas. Okay, and I, I noticed in the handout on the, the initial uh, engaging the audience, um, there was uh, an introductory part about how to get the audience to root for you. Um, what is that, and, and how do you do it? Yeah, so, you know, when, when you're standing up there and uh, you begin your talk, the audience is sort of assessing you and deciding whether they like you and whether they want to listen to you. And so really the first sort of few, I, I think this is actually um, counterproductive in terms of dampening the, the nerves, but, uh, you know, the first few minutes is actually really important uh, because you want to connect with your audience and you want to um, identify with your audience at that stage. And... Um, a few techniques I've seen is some people have really clever disclosure slides, like a colleague I work with, she has a picture of her beatable truck, you know, and then she makes jokes about how she doesn't make any money as an academic internist and ha ha ha, it works really well. And then another colleague is a heavy, heavy duty researcher in pulmonology, and before his talks, he really uh, talks a little bit and shares anecdotes about his clinical practice, uh, because most of the talks he gives to uh, wrote, you know, clinicians, and he wants to identify with them and share that he also has these experiences um, in clinic and some of the same pressures that they do. Um, so using whatever, uh, you know, stories or techniques or um, even slides that you like, but, it, you know, really the introduction goal is usually to get the audience uh, to identify with you. Um, what about choosing content? And I assume that this has something to do with in advance, figuring out 
you know, who um, or where your audience is coming from. And I, I've struggled with this in a few recent grand rounds that I've given where I wasn't sure with a sort of heterogeneous audience, like with medical students, residents, faculty in it, how exactly to choose the right content for their level. So what are some of the um, tips you guys went over for those types of things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different strategies you can use here, so I'll focus on the couple that, you know, at least our workshop team has thought were the highest yield. I think number one is uh, to, to, to try things and uh, to hone your uh, topics and your content iteratively is probably the best and the most tried and true. And so you talked about heterogeneity being an issue, but then just trialing it in heterogeneous, uh, you know, locations with heterogeneous audiences until you can find uh, what the right balance is. And an anecdote that I shared during the workshop was I went to college in New York City, and I went to a bunch of comedy clubs, and I was fortunate enough to see Dave Chappelle, who's of course a, uh, you know, very famous comedian before he struck it big, and. You know, he would tell these jokes, and maybe a half of them were funny, maybe less, maybe 40% were funny, you know, because he was just shotgunning stuff out there. But then, you know, six months later, he actually had his big breakout at a, at a giant, you know, forum in Washington, D.C., and all the jokes he told during that were funny. <laughs> and so, you know, he was just modeling this, where in a smaller locale with lower stakes, he was trying stuff out and throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. But then once he got to his grand rounds or his national forum, you know, he used only the best stuff that he knew would hit and deliver. And I think if you're able to do that, um, that's probably the most tried and true um, way of finding the right content that's going to work best. Plus, you get some exposure therapy with that same content, and so you're a little bit more comfortable presenting it. So, you know, if, if you have the luxury of, of uh, repeated um, content delivery, and usually you do, you know, between teaching students and residents and small grand rounds in the community and you know, workshops and things, you can find it. But if not, some other uh, ways uh, are uh, number one is, or I guess this would be number two. Number two is asking the conference organizers. You know, often these uh, Grand Rounds organizers or conference organizers have been doing it for year after year, and they really have their fingers on the pulse in terms of what the audience wants, and they can up front help uh, guide you to your best first effort. Um, and then lastly, just falling back on, you know, what have you personally struggled with uh, or what have you seen other people struggle with, um, you know, rather than just trying to guess. You know, if you've actually seen it, that means a lot. And you can also then segue that into an anecdote. You can, like, talk about how, you know, five people have screwed this up at your institution or whatever it is, or how you, even better yet, you know, with humility, saying how you screwed it up and you didn't know how, how this was done, and then you learned it and now how much better it is. Um, so I think I would say iteratively and trial and error is probably the best, but then also asking the conference organizers and thinking about what you've seen or what you've done wrong. So along those lines, I'm wondering, like, if you're doing it iteratively and you have the luxury of, you know, uh, almost practicing your content multiple times, who do you seek out for feedback about your your talk? Because I always find that I'm so relieved to be done with it. I don't really want to 
don't, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore. And I just want to get out of the room and bury my head in the sand or whatever. Um, but, but how do you get that feedback? Is there, do you have any tricks or tips for that? Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. I think if it's a small enough group setting, you know, if you're really talking to a group of 10 or smaller, then you try to um, uh, step away from the large audience presentation model where you've just got a PowerPoint up there and you're just talking and they're sitting there silent, and you try to open it up and turn it into an engaged sort of back and forth with the audience. Because uh, then you can really see where their head is at compared to where your head is at. And if you do it right and you set the climate right, uh, that, that was a, an intentional nod to the other podcast. But if you set the climate right, you know, then they're really going to be asking questions. They're going to be um, telling you, what, pointing things out that don't make sense, pointing out other things that they've heard. And if it becomes a real sort of back and forth thing, then you really see where other people are at. And, it, and they help you poke holes in um, some of the things that you didn't know or in your content that wasn't uh, ideal. So that's probably the best. But if you're iteratively practicing it in large group settings already, you know, where you can't really have that just dialogue, um, you know, having some sort of audience response system can at least tell you whether, you know, everyone got your, your posed question right or wrong or whatever, and maybe it's, you know, too hard or too easy. Um, and then lastly, just asking people uh, beforehand if they wouldn't mind giving you a little bit of feedback uh, uh, on your presentation. And that doesn't even need to be your friends. You know, if you could just single out one resident that you've seen before or a student or colleague or whatever it is and just saying, hey. Um, and then often they may not be as forthcoming with you up front, but then if you push them on it, say, hey, did this question make sense? Um, you know, what was your takeaway from this question? And then if their, their takeaway was wildly different than yours, you know, something's off. So it does require, Paul, a little bit of work on your end, um, which is a good point if you really want to get that benefit from the iterative nature. So it's more than just exposure therapy. It's getting a lot of information back from the audience um, to help you hone that um, content. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen uh, Bob Wachter, who's the chair of medicine over at UCSF yeah. and, you know, kind of yeah. active in the early days of the whole hospitalist uh, thing. And uh, he's a very good public speaker. But I remember going, I've known him for a long time, and that any talk I ever saw him give, he would ask me afterwards, you know, in this very unvarnished kind of way. And I'd always be thinking, you know, who am I to give you any feedback about your talk? But he'd just keep pushing until you had something for him. And I suspect that's probably how he got to be such a good speaker. But uh, anyway, so one of the other things along the lines of, you know, knowing your audience and engaging your audience um, was as I was uh, paging through your um, slides, I noticed one slide that caught my attention quite a bit, which was um, the you know, in the challenge of keeping audience attention was this slide about how the comment having the attention of a goldfish used to be a bad thing. What's, what's, that, what's that particular slide all about when it comes to engagement? Yeah, that, you know, honestly, we use that slide um, not as, you know, I don't know that remembering the numbers or anything is that important, but really it's just as something that people are sort of shocked by and chuckle at. And, you know, it's really just sort of like a, an engagement technique. That, that slide is more of an engagement technique than a content slide, you know, because it's, 
if you're saying that a human has a shorter attention span than the goldfish, that's going to make people either scoff or laugh or nod or, you know, something um, that will sort of keep them engaged. Uh, but it's based out of this flawed 2015 study um, that showed, or at least posited, maybe showed, that uh, the human attention span was something like 12 seconds in 2000. Um, and in 2015, it's down to eight seconds in the era of uh, social media and smartphones and multitasking and things like this. Um, and the attention span of a goldfish, by comparison, is nine seconds. So we went from better to than to worse than the goldfish. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I think I've heard a lot of critiques about that study, and so I'm not sure that that's hard science. But, you know, I think anecdotally, I, you know, maybe there's some truth that in the smartphone um, social media age, maybe people are better at multitasking and less good at um, maintaining attention on one speaker in a lot of large audience setting for 60 minutes or whatever. And so, you know, we use that as sort of an engagement technique, but then to segue into talking about um, how to keep engagement um, with, with an audience over, you know, because sometimes you're up for 45, 62 hours. Um, and so how can you keep people focused on you for that long? And what are some of your tips for keeping them engaged? So, you know, and this isn't based on hard science either, but the, the, three fo- the two folks I did the workshop with, the three of us, we all think that probably, you know, the audience is going to give you about 10 minutes of engagement right off the bat. Um, and then for any given story or topic, you can probably get about 10 minutes out of them before you get the dreaded smartphone sign where people are looking at their phone or, you know, the older folks in the front start to drift off or, you know, something starts to unhinge. So we think about it as in, in 10 minute increments. And so if you're sort of droning on about something, you know, the same topic for more than 10 minutes uh, without some kind of uh, reinvigorator uh, or shift, uh, then you're probably going to lose some people. Um, so 10 minute intervals, we, we think about it. And then we say, how can you re-engage people every 10 minutes? Um, some of the ones you've probably seen used often, uh, audience response systems, you know, people hand out the clickers beforehand and then you pose, posit some question. Um, and so every 10 minutes or even shorter, people are thinking about something and putting their nickel down with the audience response clicker. So that's one way. There's also, I think there's free software you can get for your cell phone for at least a limited number mm-hmm. uh, that you can do it that way as well. Um, some people, I've never been able to pull this off without it feeling sort of forced, but some people have done it really well. Actually have people stand up and move around or you know, shift or do a yoga pose or something every 10 minutes to shift it, to um, re-engage. Um, the technique that I've actually found works the best for me um, and I've done this a few times with lectures that I, you know, my content was adequate. It was okay um, compared to some of, some of the other folks in the day who was much better. And I got really good reviews um, on my slides, and I think it might have been their engagement techniques, is I posit a question as if it were going to be an audience response system type question with the numbers. But then rather than handing out the clickers, I ask them to turn to their neighbor and discuss for 60 seconds what they think the answer to this question would be. Um, and then 
you know, the room goes from dead quiet to chattering, blah, 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 blah you know. And then you sort of have to jump up and down to get them back focused on you. You know, you have to harshly break up the conversation at 60 seconds. Uh, But, you know, it really is, for me, really helped with engagement and good evaluations because people like to talk. You know, they don't want to sit there for 60 minutes. They like to talk to the person next to them. And they like to talk about what they do know and what they don't know. Um, and, and it seems like 60 seconds is a short enough time that it doesn't sort of devolve into weekend plans and whatever their, their hobbies are and things like that. And then you go with what the answer is. And they're sort of primed to sort of what are the questions in their mind, what are they thinking, and then they're either proven right or, or wrong or at least try to, and then they um, sort of get more engagement out of it. So that's what's works best for me. And then otherwise, another couple techniques, you can say, hey, this is a crucial point. You know, listen, of all my points in this lecture, this is maybe the most important, or this is a really uh, common board question, you know, for the ABIM boards, and then anyone who's going to research in the next two years will pay attention. So just like little phrases like that can engage you. And then, you know, if you're, uh, if you have the sort of gift of comedic timing, then, you know, telling a joke uh, always really works to break things up. Um, or if you can't tell a joke, then tell a story, you know, an endearing story or something like that. Because, you know, if you're just telling a story, especially if you black out your, your PowerPoint screen, that is a shift. You know, people go from watching the PowerPoint, tickle along, and then if you make it turn black and you start telling a story, then they're looking at you and they're hearing a story for a minute or two or whatever. Um, and that can really break it up. So, you know, our group has attached the engage, attack the engagement project by uh, problem by breaking things up every 10 minutes through whatever technique uh, fits best for you. It's fascinating listening to you describe these different engagement techniques because I'm, I'm just recollecting how many times I've seen them used in different talks, not all of them that you just described, but I'm thinking back on you know, what was it about that talk that worked and I don't, I don't even think I really realized that that's what the speakers were doing. I love the idea of the blank slide and telling a story. Um, and I think that's, so that's called buzz groups, right? Where you, where you have the yep. participants turn to each other. And I assume, yeah. I assume it got its yeah, name from the buzz in the room when, yep. when everybody's chattering. Exactly uh, right. Yep, exactly right. And, th- and I'll give you another added benefit, Paul. If you've got an anecdote or a story canned, then when inevitably, you know, the IT fails you, right, like it <laughs> yep. freezes or whatever, the power goes out or whatever happens, you know, your worst nightmare. If you've got a canned anecdote or a story, then you just pull it out then. <laughs> and if it's earlier, if it's late or whatever it is, if you've got something canned uh, that will take a minute or two, then you can calm your nerves about the uh, dreaded IT disaster. Yeah, that's funny. I was just giving a noontime talk to our second year students, um, and I had some videos in it. And of course, one of the videos froze, and I didn't realize I was using that technique. But I started just chattering away while I was trying to get it, the the bugs out of the system. Um, so, so it happens way more often than you think. Yeah, that it, it's sometimes that tech stuff. But speaking of PowerPoint and technology, um, I think no discussion of how to you know teach effectively in a large group setting would be complete without talking a little bit about powerpoint which i noticed that you guys did in your talk and actually i don't know if you're interested in this but in in preparation for talking with you today 
I, I looked up where PowerPoint came from because it's it's so much part of the education landscape and you know whether it's elementary school or college or medical school or business um, and actually discovered that it was um, invented by a couple software developers. One was named Robert Gaskins, and the other one was Dennis Austin. Um, and their company was Forethought, Inc. Um, and uh, Microsoft bought it from them in, uh, like, 1987 for $14 million. Um, and they basically sort of had these various iterations of it. Initially, it was it was used, and this is the way I used it the first time in uh, I used it in 1992 for my senior resident talk. It was the slides that went in the carousel, but you could use the software to get the slides made. Um, but anyway, that's the history of PowerPoint. And I feel like it is an amazing tool, but potentially a huge albatross um, if it's if it's used incorrectly or abused. I with should say. With great power comes great responsibility, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so what were some of the the things you guys had to say about PowerPoint and how not to destroy your talk by using PowerPoint? Yeah, um, I think you know that I'll just point out the two. Um, biggest problems that I see. So again, you know, hearkening back to the choosing a content, right? So what do I personally see other people sort of screw up um, with the, with PowerPoint and how could they do better? Um, number one are the people that um, spend way too much time getting into the gimmicks of PowerPoint, right? Like they spend the first like three hours choosing the right slide design, you know, and gimmick, you know, shifting it up and down and changing the colors and making it a gradient background and all this stuff. And then they have it so that every time you switch slides, it like spins around before it switches or it zooms in and out, you know, or it like moves around on a 20-sided dot. You know, there there are all these different things you can do with PowerPoint that could take all of your presentation preparation time. And, uh, you know, my our workshop group thinks that you should just stick a dark background up there and use light font or a light background and use dark font and then start working on your material. Um, you know, because that type of selection will take you 10 minutes and then you can move on. And then, and honestly, sometimes when people use those gradient fonts and those whip around things, it can be distracting. You know, the gradient font, maybe it's real clear at the top, but then it gradients down and then you're squinting at the bottom, you know, people in the back of the room. And other pe people have, you know, green and red color blindness and sometimes with the red, you know, anyways, light, light background, dark font or vice versa and just start working on your content. And the other problem I see is that some people try to put, try to be comprehensive. Um, and so they'll put, they'll pile things into PowerPoint that they certainly don't remember, um, probably don't remember it 10 minutes after putting it on the slide in PowerPoint. And so it's sort of disingenuous. You know, you're trying to get someone else to look at this slide and remember it, and you don't even remember it uh, because there's too much on there. Um, so I think really honing down and putting on your slides just the core concept of what you want to convey. Um, so the general guideline we put on our workshop is five lines per slide and five words per line. Um, and then really thinking about trying to vary the types of slides that you use. You know, you look at some people's PowerPoints and it's like, you know, a title, a subtitle, and then 
eight bullet points. And then the next slide is the same thing, and the next slide is the same thing, and the next slide is the same thing. And you're like, oh my gosh, how many bullet points am I going to have to watch? You know, am I going to have to look through? It's just too redundant. So ideally, you know, you're thinking about what is the story you want to tell? You know, what is the concept you want to tell with this PowerPoint um, over the next five or ten minutes? Again, because you're going to then re-engage or change. So I got five minutes or ten minutes. How do I want to convey this? And so is it best conveyed with a chart or is it a graph or is it a picture and a story or is it uh, bullet points but try not to do that that often. Um, so you're thinking about what you want to convey more than you are thinking about being comprehensive and dumping everything in there. Um, and so the anecdotes we put in there are, you know, I and this is my how I've screwed it up in the past. So I was giving a talk as a resident on diabetes and a metformin. So I put up a slide with metformin on there and then side effects. And then literally there were like 25 bullet points for side effects on my slide. And it's just brutal to look at because it's the pages covered with words and there's a million things on there. There's no take-homes. There's no way anyone could, you know, assimilate this knowledge. And then, you know, I, of course, ideally you would put something like commonly seen side effects of metformin or important side effects of metformin, then you'd put the handful that you actually know when you practice on on the slide. And so then it becomes nice. It's, you know, important side effects of metformin and then three or four side effects on there and then you move along. So it's not comprehensive. It's actually things that you think are important. It's not disingenuous because you actually remember these side effects. And then also you're able to deliver this out to the audience because you know them. You know, you know it's GI upset and lactic acidosis and what, you know, whatever you B12 deficiency, whatever you say. You know this in your head because you've been practicing it and so you're able to deliver it really well. While as if you have the 20 things on there, you're inevitably reading the screen. Um, and the other example we put in the, um, in the workshop uh, is with regards to the use of charts. So something that I see people do is, you know, they want to show some data from a publication. And so they'll copy and paste the, the uh, chart or the um, table or whatever it is in raw form into your PowerPoint. And those things are huge. You know, there's usually like four or five columns and ten rows or something like this. And so you're up there talking and the audience isn't listening to you because they're looking at this enormous amount of data on the page and you're struggling to sort of orient them to which parts of the data you want. Some people put a circle on there or whatever. But ideally, you know, you should push yourself to really just put the content on there that you really want conveyed. You know, what do, what do you actually remember? Or, you know, what, what, which, what of all that data in that paper is the data that's actually driven you to change your practice? So the example we use is the BRIDGE trial, which is, you know, patient, 2015 doing a journal, patients with AFib on warfarin, and, you know, what they um, randomized to either get bridging, low molecular heparin or not. And so if you look at that trial data, there's a million pieces of data that you could put in there, copy and paste into there, but what do you really care about? Did they have stroke or arterial thromboembolism, and did they have bleeding, and what were the differences? So then you put those those um, variables or values and only those on your slide. So it becomes really nice. It's like a, you know, two by two table. 
here's what happened in the bridge group with with regards to stroke and embolism. Here's in the non-group. Here's what happened in the bridge group with uh, bleeding, and here's in the non-bridge group. That's all you care about. You know, if that's if that's if that's the data that's driven you to change your practice and the data that you sort of remember remember part of it, then that's what you put on there. You don't put anything extra, superfluous. Um, and then and that makes for really nice looking slides and allows you to explain the slide rather than sort of wade through the slide. Um, and I think those things, you know, the PowerPoint can really lead to benefits in other as uh, you know in other uh, parts of your delivery. You know, if you're if you're talking about concepts that you know and you practice in everyday practice, you're going to be comfortable saying those things and you're going to be comfortable not looking at the slides while you convey those things versus if you're just throwing stuff up there that you just looked up, you know, if you're copy and pasting from up to date or whatever into your PowerPoint, you're never going to remember that. You don't really use that. Um, so it's really focusing on what are the important concepts, um, what are the concepts that you're comfortable explaining, and then what's the most visually appealing way of showing them. Does that make sense, Paul? Sorry, I talked a lot there. No, no, uh, no, it totally makes sense. Um, I think one thing, and this is, I don't know, maybe just an observation, thinking about this as an educator over the years and, and you know, doing a lot of talks, um, I sometimes wonder if the reason people stuff uh, tons of things into these slides, too, is that it's easier to prepare the talk because then the talk is on the slides. Whereas if you have to boil and distill things down to your main thing that you're trying to get across, it requires more time and thought, energy, reflection. Um, and then you also have to kind of have it memorized or note somewhere that you're using um, rather than just working off the slides almost like as a crutch. I don't know what you think of that. but Yeah, I, I have a quick comment on that. I think that that's definitely true. Um, it also, though, comes at like a fear of under uh, under teaching or whatever. You're like, well, the only things, the only side effects I know about metformin are, you know, whatever GI lactic acidosis and B12 deficiency. But oof, there might be a one out there that I don't know about, and you know, if I don't put it on here, then I'm going to look stupid, or someone's going to sue me, or something like that. You know. Um, and so the way that I personally got around that is by asking other people, you know, so I'll say, you know, I'll grab a colleague or something or even an expert in the field, especially if it's like a cardiology thing that I'm trying to convey. I'll go grab our cardiologist and I'll say, hey, you know, when I think of this drug, I think of these things. What do you think about? And then they'll either say, yes, I agree, or they'll say, whoa, 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 you got to remember about this also. Um, and the more times you do that, the more other peers or especially experts in the field that you ask, then the more comfortable you feel about your own practice, your own, uh, you know, content and slides, and then your delivery. You know, because if you're like, if you're delivering a slide and, it's, and you never ask anyone about it, you're just looking up to date, you know, you might feel nervous. But if you've asked two people about it, then you feel comfortable. You said, hey, you know, I talked to my buddies who are endocrinologists and they agreed with me. These are the things you really need to know about this drug. Yeah, and I guess the benefit there too would be you could even bring in those conversations as part of your the storytelling uh, exactly. Tip. You yep. say, hey, I was Narrative. talking to... And you can, yeah. yeah, and you can even make it self-deprecatory. You know, you can say, hey, I thought it was this and this, 
But then when I talked to my colleagues or whatever, they said, no, 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 you're wrong. It's these other, you know, you can make any story about it. Or you can talk about how you didn't know this until something came up, you know, and you can make a story about it and then it becomes powerful. Like, you know, then you're not only identifying with the audience, look, I screwed things up too, I don't know anything, but then you're also showing them why it's important. You know, I had a case and I didn't know this and, you know, now I do and it's going to be better or, you know, or I learned this and then I met a patient and he had it and I fixed him and I changed it and now they're better, you know, because then you're not only identifying with them and sharing the content, but you're showing them how it's going to help them and how it's going to apply in their life. Interesting. Yeah, I guess um, I sort of wonder if the next iteration or maybe 15 years from now, there'll be a PowerPoint uh, program that they'll have refined it to the point where a little red light goes off, you know, if you violate certain basic rules of use and abuse yeah. of PowerPoint. And it probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Like, are you aware that you've exceeded the f- five words, five lines rule yeah, here? Yeah. A little, little, like a gong, right? Like yes, a gong show. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, finally, any tips about calming nerves for these big presentations in front of large groups? Yeah, Paul. So, um, you know, if you pull, so, you know, we were fortunate enough to give this um, workshop at AIM, and then I've done it on a smaller scale in Boise, uh, a different, few different forums. And every time I've pulled people beforehand and said, hey, what do you want to get from this topic, you know, teaching effectively in a large audience setting, number one is nerves every single time. It is just a hard thing to deal with, um, and just the autonomics of it and the apprehension and everything. Um, so in terms of tips for calming nerves, um, I think you know, a lot of it comes back to what the topic you select is uh, and um, what pre-work you do on it. You know, if you are, if you choose a topic that you're not comfortable with and then you try to create it on an island without any help, you're just not going to be that comfortable because you don't live that content. Um, so choosing, the, and because, you know, I hear some people like, oh, you know, I'm going to give a talk on this because that will be a great way of learning it. You know, I want to learn more about sarcoidosis, so I'm going to give a talk on it. And that's true. Um, you will learn more about it, but you're never going to feel really comfortable delivering that content unless you sort of work in that realm or unless you ask a whole bunch of people about it beforehand. So I think, you know, choosing content that you're comfortable with or making yourself comfortable with it by asking a bunch of questions of peers or specialists is super important. Um, and, and, you know, and then choosing anecdotes um, or uh, data or concepts that you've learned that you can explain the content or the anecdote sort of easily uh, will help with nerves. Like, for instance, if you met a patient and they really had an impact on you in regards to your knowledge or your techniques of something, you know, that's stuck with you and that's, you've learned that and you've incorporated that and you can, you can probably tell an audience that easily. Um, and so you should probably try and in- incorporate things like that into your topic because when that comes, it'll be you just telling that story about that patient. Um, and it's, it's harder to forget that or, um, or uh, mix that up. Um, and then there's a few other things, you know, exposure therapy is crucial. I was a, an extremely nervous public speaker when I started, and now I'm getting to be moderately nervous, <laughs> um, heading towards um, less nervous even, and it's just happened with time and sort of forcing myself to do it. And then, of course, your adrenergics, you know, don't drink an extra cup of coffee in the morning of, 
Um, if you drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol the evening before in case there's like the mildest of withdrawals that will increase your anxiety. <laughs> uh, and then um, setting yourself up for success with uh, making sure your PowerPoint's ready and you have it with you and you've emailed it to the folks and you've showed up early and things like that. So we don't, I don't think we have the secret sauce on the nerves um, other than uh, these few tips that we got. Yeah, those are those are great tips. Um, I, I uh, a few years back, I was giving grand rounds at the San Francisco VA, and I got a bloody nose in the oh middle of grand rounds. <laughs> Talk about testing your uh, calmness in that situation. This very nice yeah, third yeah. year student ran out to their little pizza cart where they had the pizza they were giving out for grand rounds. It brought me some napkins, and I held my nose and kept going and gave the entire yeah. grand rounds. So it's one of those things. Remarkable resiliency. Yeah. Nice work, Paul. Oh, thank you. Uh, any other final thoughts, Mike? About any um, anything about uh, giving successful, effective presentations? Yeah, um, for, I just want to thank you, Paul, for having me on here. I'm a major consumer of podcasts, and uh, you know, this is my first one being a part of it, and so I feel like a, I'm really honored about it, and I feel like I'm paying it back a little bit. I have to do some more to I'm on probably like a 200 to 1 ratio right now but hopefully I'll uh, take away at that. But uh, in terms of the content uh teaching effectively, you know, I think that uh whether it's right or wrong, uh you know, we sort of as if you're in academics, um you sort of are judged on your ability to deliver large audience presentations uh by some people or many people even. And so even though the wave of the future is small groups and flipped classrooms and, uh, you know, back and forth, you know, you still are asked to do bigger talks. Um, and a lot of people watch them and formulate opinions. So it just sort of is an important skill for better or worse. Um, so it's probably worth the effort at honing it and getting used to it so that you can get some enjoyment and jaw and joy out of it and it stops being a chore and an and a real anxious thing and starts being something that you tolerate and then hopefully moves into enjoy. Um, I know that um, I personally uh, did not used to like this and now it's a real um, plus part of my job that I look forward to. Um, and Lenny Mankin as well, my co-presenter. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that, you know, you really, sh I think that part of the enjoyment and the the delivery and the nerves is all centered around um, telling stories, not delivering content. Uh, you know, you want to grab a handful of stories. You know, if it's a 60-minute presentation, something like five concepts or stories or whatever that you want to tell, and then crafting things around that. So not trying to bite off too much. You know, what five things do you think the audience will get benefit of and will help their practice and they'll enjoy hearing about? And then what's the best way that you can show that? Is it an anecdote? Is it graphs and data? Is it a joke? You know, is it however it is? So thinking about stories more than content. Those are excellent, excellent tips, Mike. And I know the podcast audience will get a lot out of this. Um, and uh, hopefully they'll improve their large group presentations and, and even their small group presentations as well. 
Well, Mike, I want to thank you for joining me today from Boise, and uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right. How do you say it? Uh, I think you nailed it. Oh, I Boise. did? Boise. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to work on that. Well, <laughs> well, thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, Mike. Thanks so much, Paul. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.